Well, uh, we are about to embark on a nine-week walk through the book of Colossians. If you've got a Bible, uh, I hope that you do. uh, If you could turn in it to the book of Colossians, which is in the New Testament farther in the back. Uh, If you don't have one and you would like to have one, we have some sitting on the tables right over there. Uh, And if you would like one, we can can definitely get you one of those so that you can keep it. You can bring it home. That's totally cool with us. But we are going to walk through uh, over the next several weeks in uh, the book of Colossians, which is a letter from... From the Apostle Paul directly to uh, the church at Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, kind of near, um, you wouldn't even know where things are, but I mean, it doesn't really matter, but they're... um, they're in that kind of Iran, Iraq, modern-day Turkey, that kind of that kind of area. Uh, a town that was a church that was started by a guy named Epaphras. Actually, Paul has never even met these people, but he's writing a letter to them because he's heard of how great they're doing, basically. And the reason why we the reason why we walk through these passages, the reason why we're going to walk verse by verse through this book, is because that's exactly how you would read it at home. Um, sometimes preachers will get up and they'll have some kind of theme and then they'll, you know, they'll, they'll state various points and then they pick random scriptures from all over the, all over the Bible to prove the points that they come up with. The great thing about walking through verse by verse through a book of the Bible is number one, I would have to preach on things that I wouldn't normally uh, preach on. I might choose not to preach on them because they're pretty hard or, um, they're just confusing. Uh, the second reason is, um, and that we can we can grasp through, and I don't pull I don't pull my points from out of thin air. That they're just the points and the principles and the truths of the scripture are not just coming from my brain and my heart, but they're actually being pulled directly out of the scripture, and then I talk about them. So that's you'll see. Why, you know, why do we go through every single verse? Uh, that's pretty. That's pretty much why. So here's what I want to do. I know that this is a nine week series, so I want to give you a little bit of a preface to the book of Colossians altogether. It's written in a time where Rome basically had taken over the entire world. And to understand the Colossian church, we have to understand Rome as a whole. And just to to give you a picture, Rome at this point in time was 4,200 miles wide. They had conquered most of the known world, 4,200 miles wide. I don't know if you're tracking with me. America is only 3,300 miles wide. So we're talking about a massive massive country and then we have uh, and then just to know that they actually reigned within that 4200 miles they reigned and ruled that land for 1500 years that's a long time that's a long time to hold that much territory and there's three basic things that the romans had that uh, that all actually a lot of our modern civiliz- civilizations actually take care of the first thing is they had uh, 50,000 miles worth of roads so you might have heard kind of the cliche the, the roman road well that that's actually very real they were the first civilization to uh, i guess create interstates for that matter they 50,000 miles and they also created bridges that they still use over there today that are over 2,000 years old that they still use. The other thing that, that is great with the, uh, with the Roman culture is they, they call the, the Pax Romana, which simply means the peace of Rome. Inside of that 4,200-mile territory, 
it was relatively peaceful. And I, I mean, you might have seen uh, Gladiator or uh, some other type of movie or maybe the HBO series Rome. Uh, and, and most of those movies are very violent. They're about war. They're about, um, kill, I mean, killing, violence, all sorts of stuff. But really, inside of the country of Rome during this time, it was relatively peaceful, except for one occurrence with Nero, and he got a little crazy and burned things up. But other than that, I mean, if you lived as a Roman inside of that country, uh, it was relatively peaceful for you. And, and many, many generations went by without, I mean, you would never see a war. You'd never be into the, in the army. I mean, it was, it was very much peaceful. The other thing is the Romans were the first one to create modern law. And, and they were the first ones to say law is going to be based on an objective truth or objective action. For many years, for centuries on end, law was based on uh, just what you thought was guilty. Like if, some, if you just thought that your friend uh, stole your stuff, you had the perfect opportunity just to go and kill them. And you would be righteous and that would be fine just because you thought. And if, if you had maybe the intention of hurting someone, you could be prosecuted. The Romans came along and they said, listen, we are only going to prosecute. Their, their, their judgment system was based upon past action. I know that, that for us, that's just merely intuitive. Of course, you only get arrested, you only get tried, you only get judged on something that you've already done, not on something that you will do. But for the Romans, this was a new idea. You had to be judged on some kind of objective truth that happens to you, and you had your Roman court system. So this is the, uh, this is the context in which the Colossian church is, is governed, is ruled. They had roads working through their system. And there's two things that Paul, in this letter, throughout the whole letter, I mean, some of it today, but most of it later, uh, is going to be preaching against. Specifically, um, for many people, for many Romans that lived inside, Rome was their great aspiration. Everything was about Rome. Every, you know, if you lived, if you were a Roman, you were at the top of the class. There was nowhere else to go. Your life was about being a Roman and doing what Romans do. Your life was specifically geared to aspire to be the best Roman you could possibly be. There was nothing after that. That was the best life. You aspired to be a Roman. Actually, and you know, a lot of these countries, a lot of the movies that we see, um, you know, there's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of violence where Rome would go and take over territories. But in reality, many of the other countries that they took over just kind of gave up. The reason why is because they actually liked Rome. They wanted to be governed by Rome. And that was okay with them. Like, they understood that that was a wealthy, good country to live in. And when the Romans came and knocked and said, hey, we want to take you over, and they were just like, okay, that sounds fine. We'll do it. Because of, because of their systems. And because, so Paul sees this as the church is looking at Rome as their great aspiration. The best thing in life is Rome. That's all we need. What else do we need? The other thing is that uh, as Rome began to take over the entire world, a lot of cultures begin colliding, and they created a melting pot, much like America is today. And you had all of these spiritualities, all of these religions colliding together uh, and creating impurity within different religions. And so you have Epaphras going to, Colo going to Colossae, reaching a group of people, creating a church. They're, he goes to them with the purity of the gospel, gives it to them. They surrender their lives to Christ. And then over time, they kind of look at the other options and say, you know what? 
um, my, you know, my Jewish mystic friend over here, my neighbor over here, you know, he has a really good prayer life. So I'm going to take whatever principle that he is using and apply it to my Christianity. Or you might, you might look at like a Druid or something else, you know, some other major form of religion that was happening inside of that day. You might look at your, uh, at that neighbor and say, you know, he has a really good family life. He's a really good father. I, I, I must take, I have to take his religious system and include it into mine. It's called syncretism. But essentially, Paul is working worried about the purity of the gospel, that they're adding all of these things to their faith that doesn't need to be there. So throughout this book, um, Paul is going to deal with the purity of what the gospel message is. You need Jesus alone and nothing else. And so we'll talk about that a little bit today. So here's the big question for this entire series. Um, Is the beautiful life, is the life that you have all that there really is? Is this as good as it gets, literally? Um, Is this the life that we really need? Because the people that he's writing to think that they've got everything. They've got everything that they could possibly need. There's nothing more. So I have it. So why do I need Jesus? Why do I need God to kind of mess around and and make my life more complex? Why would I I need that? And then the second thing Paul is going to deal with is, how do we protect the truth of the gospel? From impurity. So two things. How uh, is life is life as we know it right now all there is? And secondly, how do we protect against the impurity of the gospel? So if you're in Colossians, let's read the first couple verses. And it'll be up on the screen. I'll get out of the way so you can read it. Um, first couple verses of Colossians, first, uh, verse 1 through 8. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So let's pray together. Father, I am... uh, very grateful for your word. I realize that it is perfect truth. I realize that uh, it is the most perfect thing that will be said today. And so I pray that as we examine it, as we interpret what you have um, given to us, I pray that we would seek the truth in all manners. Um, Father, that, that your word would penetrate the hearts of all of us and that mine would fly away in the wind. Father, we love you. We're thankful for Jesus. And it's because of him we do this. In his name we pray. Amen. A lot of us had uh, people that we looked up to when we were younger. Uh, a lot of us had our icons, our mentors, the people that we, uh, that we really wanted to be like. I, I've got a couple for you that I want to just walk through. Uh, the, the first is, is my dad. I'll show you a picture of my dad. He was here last week if you missed him. There's, there's him and uh, there's, there's my son Haddon, three generations right there. I apologize about it. He looks really tan in this picture for some reason. Um, but that's my dad. And, of course, when, of course when I was Haddon's age, my, my dad was, 
he was everything. He was the only person I knew to look up to. He was the only person I knew to, to learn anything from. And my dad was a, 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 an amazing person. He still is to this day. I, I graduated from uh, thing learning from my dad because I found someone that might have been a little stronger. Um, and uh, Jared, go ahead. This is where I went to next. Um, I'm not into the briefs, the red briefs. Uh, but but He-Man was my next great mentor in life. For whatever reason, by the power of Grayskull, I wanted to be like this guy. And so I looked up to him for for whatever reason. And, and then from there, I, I got a little weird uh, to, to the next one. I went, this is a modern version, of course. But uh, you could see, like, I love the Ninja Turtles. I had, it, it was anybody there with me had the action figures? Yes! Brave souls. Awesome. So, I mean, Leonardo was my all in all. He was the leader. I don't know why anybody else would like the other guys, right? So, I mean, he had a sword. I mean, how awesome is that? You may, amazingly enough, he never actually hit anybody with it. I'm not sure how he did that, but, uh, but this was my next aspiration. I just wanted to be like Leonardo. Uh, and then it got, then I decided, hey, I'm going to get a little smarter. Uh, and so then I began watching uh, this show, um, which, which completed my life. Um, and so began to really see, hey, I, it needs to be more than about uh, swords. So I just kind of miniaturized it into the Swiss Army knife. Um, so in MacGyver, just thinking through, this is my mentor. I want to be just like him. Uh, and then I went through a brutal stage uh, where I graduated to more of a, the, the PG-13 version. Uh, and, and you notice there's this, I, I, as I put these pictures up there, I was like, there's a trend with the swords. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> It's, it's, it's really brutal. But anyway, the reason why I show you all this is, or is really the next picture altogether. Uh, this is a family. They really look like they're tan, aren't they? Um, they're really white, really white normally, not orange. Um, but uh, this is a family. You don't know them. They live up in Kentucky. It's a Davis family. And uh, I interned under Scott, the dad there. And uh, I just wanted to be like their family. I desired to be uh, just like him as a father, just like him as a husband. I wanted my, I met them. I knew them before I knew Adrian. I wanted my wife to, to look like Marcy, who's his wife. I wanted my kids to act like their kids. And I grew, I actually grew with them and worked with them as they were having their first child, Chloe. He's up on the left-hand side. And I, I watched them. Uh, I was there when the baby was born and not really there, but I was kind of there. And, um, you know, but I watched their parenting style, and, and uh, I'm not sure if it's Adrian really got annoyed with me about this, but like when our first baby was born, pretty much every day it was, this is how Scott and Marcy did this. This is how Marcy parented her child. This is how Marcy disciplined her child. This is how Scott uh, you know, was, gave wisdom to his child. And it was just this perfect picture of a great family, and they're still like that. And we all, I think we all have those people in our life where it was like, this is the, this is the man I want to be like. This is the perfect picture of how things are supposed to go. And what's cool about the whole book of Colossians, unlike uh, some of the other books like Galatians in your Bible, uh, Paul's pretty harsh on those people or Corinthians or something like that. But Colossians is Paul basically saying, this is a great picture of a church. This is what you guys need to look like. And he says that in the first couple of verses. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith. I mean, he is saying, this is, you are living it out. You are doing a great job. It is the perfect picture of what Christianity looks like in a real world scenario. This is who you should emulate altogether. 
And so t- today what I'm going to look at is um, a couple majorly in verse 4 and verse 5. Uh, but Paul outlines two very simple actions that the, uh, that the Colossians are doing, and then he anchors it with something. So two actions. So if you're taking notes, I'm looking at two actions in verse 4, and then one anchor that he bases the two actions on. So you're tracking with me on that. Um, the first one is in verse 4. The first one is, um, the first action is faith in Jesus Christ. And I know that's pretty simple. Faith in Jesus Christ. Um, he, he says this in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Um, so what is this idea of faith? They had the right person on the throne of their life. Imagine if there's a priority list in your life. You know, my wife is number one, my my kids are number two, my job is number three, that kind of thing. They had Jesus at the top. Number one in their life of priorities was Jesus. They had it right. They had their faith in the right place. Um, They had placed their lives and they had placed their lives in the master's hand. Although it was probably very unpopular in the Roman society. Very unpopular. Uh, and they decided to say, hey, with all those other gods, all those other faiths, everything else, I, you know, we're going to put that aside for my faith in Christ. And it's not some kind of random faith. It's, it's, it's really strange to me, our culture. Um, I, I've often had people uh, talk about my faith, and they'll look at me and they'll say, I'm so glad that you have great faith. Okay? And, the, and it's very... Uh, I guess obtuse, it's, it's very kind of mystical and out there. It's not connected with anything. And, and, and it's, sports announcers will do this with uh, Christian athletes. And they'll say, the reason why he's so good at his you know, football career is because he has great faith. I'm like, football doesn't have much to do with a faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, you're not stronger or better or a better quarterback or a better linebacker because of your great faith. Now, your faith could guide you to do great things because you want to do your best for Jesus and use the talents that he's given you uh, to do great things. But it's not, uh, your faith is anchored in a spiritual being. It's not mystical or out there or untethered to anything faith is specifically uh about something that is objective it's not out there randomly uh and as for us for the church at cane bay this person is jesus boldly proclaim that and i you know we talk about god and god is you know we believe in god the god of the bible god almighty jehovah jireh and we believe in god specifically We believe that God sent his son, Jesus, and that the Bible calls for us to worship him. And so we do. We unashamedly worship a specific person, not a mystical presence. We actually worship one man who is God, who is Jesus. It's not a mysterious deity. It's not some kind of spirit being. It is a person who came and died for us and now gives us life so that we can worship him. And if you take Jesus away from our church, you take away everything. Our church doesn't exist without the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish I had the picture up for you. But when Joel and I sat down in a, in a room with a whiteboard when we first came up with the, with the concept of this church a year and a half ago, it's been a long time, um, we just put, we put Jesus and the gospel at the very center and said, we're just going to focus in on this. If we, do, if we get Jesus right, if we get the gospel right, everything else will come together. Without Jesus at the center of this church, at the center of your life, everything goes awry. And so we have to place our faith 
directly in Jesus. And it is about our whole being. And here's, here's something that I think a lot of us get right. I think a lot of us might have faith in Jesus or we might have faith in God and we believe that he's out there somewhere and there's a piece of us that's holding on to him. But there's a lot of us that isn't and it's only some part. And I, I found this, um, this great quote that I want to read to you. And it's, a, it's from a missionary uh, from East Africa. His name is Vincent Donovan. And what he, what he did was he went to the Maasai people. It's a, a tribe in Africa. And he won them to Jesus uh, by preaching to them the gospel. They responded in faith and converted to Christianity. And over time, he decided, hey, I should uh, translate uh, God's word of the Bible into uh, the Maasai language. And so he was working on this with the elders of the tribe because they knew the language best. It was just an oral society so um, or a verbal society. So they, he just, they had to work from going from a verbal to a written form. And so uh, they, they came to the word faith. How are we going to define faith? What does faith mean? And he, they, they came to a conclusion to say that faith means to agree to, just to agree to. I just agree to that. I understand it. I get it. It's in my head. I got it. And this is what one of the, um, the Messiah elders, uh, an, older, an older gentleman, said about that, uh, about that definition. He says, To agree to is similar to a hunter shooting an animal with his gun from a great distance. Only his eyes and his fingers took part in the act. We should find another word. He said for a, for a man... Uh, he said, for a man really is to, to believe is like a lion going after his prey. His nose and his eyes and his ears pick up on the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and a single blow to the neck with the front paw. The, bull, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion en- envelops it in his arms and his leg. Pull, uh, pulls it to himself and makes it a part of himself. This is the way that the lion kills. This is the way that a man should believe. And this is what faith is. I love that picture. Faith is not distant. It's not something that we grab onto when we want to. It's not something when, when we go through hard times, we hold on to God because that's the only thing that's sturdy in our life. Faith is something that we grasp with our whole entire being, like a lion going after its prey, that you become one with it. It's something that is about your whole entire body. It's about your, your soul and your mind grasping onto Jesus and making a 100% of your life about what Jesus has for you. That's what faith is. That's what entire faith is. The second action. Uh, the second action is love for others. And this is pretty simple stuff. Uh, and you'll notice, uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't looked at it yet, he actually uses the words faith, love, and hope. And most of us take those words faith, hope, and love. We're used to that connotation, but he actually, they actually live out faith, hope, and love in this. But it says this in verse 4, after um, faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have, for all of the saints. And what he means by this simply is that they are working out Matthew 22, which is Jesus's command that we should, the first priority is that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and we should love others like ourselves. They are living out their Christian, their, their Christian faith by loving all of the saints. And I realize that it says, uh, says all the saints and that pictures us love within the church. And I, t- I, I do believe that if uh, the church 
that the people that um, belong to Jesus, if we love each other, then that will extend out to others. I hope that we won't become inclusive, um, but I think Paul specifically means that we love everyone, that we love others. And that, that I think here's the problem with love in our culture, and I won't linger on this long, uh, but if we are to love others, our culture has gone to two very different extremes with love. It's either a very uh, kind of, uh, again, like faith, kind of just out there wistfully. That I love, you know, all you have to do is love. All, you know, the Beatles love this. All, all we need is love. This grand idea that's out there in a big cloud somewhere that if we all just loved each other, then everything would be better. And that's, that's one action that the, that the world goes to an extreme. The other action is uh, that love is completely material. And we see this a lot in Christmas or Valentine's Day. If you love someone, you will get stuff for them. You will, you will act for them. You will buy extravagant gifts for them. You, your love is, is tethered to this idea that, that love, is, love is a gift. And you give it to your spouse or you give it to your girlfriend or your fiance or you bring stuff for your coworkers. And that's, that's really how you love someone at Christmas time. But what Christianity is, it needs to do is bring these two ideas together and say, yes, love is an emotion. I'm not going to take that away from it. Love is an emotional uh, a part of who we are. And love is also action. Love is material to some extent. It's not all material, and it's not all emotion. It's this great mix of both of those together. I mean, could you imagine for me, with, with my wife and possibly your spouse as well. Imagine if um, you wanted to show love to your spouse and say she, she went ahead, like, Adrian, you know, she goes off for a week on, you know, some tr- trip or something like that and comes home. And what she get, comes when she gets home is me, you know, standing uh, right by the door on my knees, arms wide open saying, baby, I love you. I love you so much, you don't, and I'm crying and weeping, and lo- I just want to love you. I just care for you so much, and I just over and over, I jump on my feet, hug her, just kiss her, love her. Every, every bit of it is just emotional. I just miss you so much, I love you. And while she hugs me, she looks in back of me, and, and the whole house is a complete wreck. And, I mean, there's dirty dishes piled up. My underwear is all over the floor. I mean, the bathroom is dirty. Everything is nasty. There's no food in the refrigerator. Everything is torn apart inside of the house. And she, you know, kind of pats me on the back and says, Honey, what happened to our house? What's wrong? What's wrong? I, you know, if you loved me, you would have worked hard. Instead of on that speech, you would have worked hard on the dishes. You know? It's not completely emotional. I've had to clean the house. Been there, I'll give her a hug on the way back. That's a great mix. On the other hand, sometimes it's, sometimes it's just spouses have no, uh, there is no emotional connection. You know, it's like, I told you I love you when we got married. And if that ever changes, then I'll let you know, you know, um, uh, that, that kind of deal. So like um, there has to be this emotional connection with, with your spouse or your loved one. That, there has to be a verbal or some kind of physical connection with them. It can't, it can't just be material. What, I mean, could you imagine, the other, imagine that scenario another way? She's gone for a week. I'm, you know, I spend the whole entire day cleaning up the house. It's spick and span. I've got a present for her laying on the, uh, you know, laying on the table. It says Adrian on it. I, you know, it's a new, I don't know, vacuum or something like that. And um, 
whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's laying there. And then when she gets home from a week, I, you know, I'm chilling out on the couch watching TV. And she walks in and says, hey. And I'm like, hey, clean the house. Got your gift. You know? That's not a good mix either. What the church is and what Paul is saying in Colossians is you, you guys are loving in the right way. It's both emotional and material. It's both uh, it's action and love as, as a very passionate affection. And we have to have both of those things. We have to have both of those things. Here's our anchor. This is where we're going to come down. Uh, our anchor is, and I love this, and we're going to really spend some time here. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for all of the saints. This isn't random hope. Most of the time, this is, this is us. I just hope this happens. I hope I get a job. I hope I make some money. I hope my kids are okay. I hope, you know, I, I hope, I hope, I hope. And the hope is not, it's not tethered to anything. It's not angered into anything. It's just wistful. It's just out there. It's, com- it's completely, uh, it's, com- it's out on a cloud somewhere that doesn't make any sense. I just hope that this happens. Biblical hope, on the other hand, is tethered to something. And what's great about it is, is it says in verse 5, The hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The best part about Christianity, I want you to get this, the best part about Christianity is the fact that we start with truth. We start with it. And then we go into action for it. Meaning that we don't, start, we don't spend all of our time searching for some hope out there. We don't spend all of our time searching for some truth, hoping to find it. With all, you know, all of our life is just spent, I just want to figure out the spiritual reality. But we start with the truth of the gospel and then our actions go out from there. Does that, I, hope that, I hope that makes sense. The Christian, the Christian hope is something both. Here, and here's the deal. It's both something to look forward. I'm not saying that the Christian hope isn't you know, something that you don't look forward to. But the Christian hope is something that is tethered to something in the past. So our hope comes from an event that already has happened. And that, that event that Paul, that Paul is, is alluding to is the gospel of Christ. What Jesus has already done for us on the cross. Who ha, he has saved us. He has given us life. He has given us freedom. That is our hope. That hope happened 2,000 years ago and still happens every single day after that. And our hope for the future is laid up in that past event. It's not random. It's not subjective. It's not it's not just like, I think that the hope is going to happen. No, the hope has already happened. And we just have this promise of reward in heaven laid up for us in heaven. So here's the point um, that I want you to get. Paul's audience is like, our hope is Rome. Our hope is the, the privilege and prominence of Rome happen to happen, hoping, hoping to happen. And we believe sometimes, and this is true, we believe that America is our hope. Sometimes we believe that our, you know, our spouse is our hope. Our job is our hope. Our money that we make is our hope. Our children are our hope. But biblically, none of those are our hope. Biblically, our hope is laid up in Jesus and what he has done for us, um, which, which is quite amazing. And how Paul refutes this is to say that, yes, the Romans were a great society. They also were very judgmental. They wielded something... For power and control. And that thing was the cross. The Romans put 
literally thousands upon ten thousands of people on the cross. Jesus wasn't the only one. Thousands of people were crucified. They just they they ridded people of of life all the time. And they wielded it for power and control. Christ and Christ turned that on its head. Christ wielded the cross and used the cross to give freedom and salvation, not power and control. It's a beautiful picture of what, you know, we think that we're supposed to have this specific life, but God just kind of turns it on its head altogether. Um, <clears throat> when I was uh, <laughs> speaking directly about hope, uh, when I was, uh, I, I used to play baseball. Anybody Baseball? Did anybody play baseball? There you go. Um, when I was a baseball player, I wasn't very good ever, and mainly because I'm, I, I was always, uh, and, and this is a good word for young kids, husky. Um, that's a really good way of saying you're a little chunk, right? But we don't want to call you that. So, like, we would go to JCPenney because they were the only store that sold husky clothes. Um, so I was big and I was slow. So they put me as the catcher, um, all the time. Um, I was never actually out in the field, but you know, played played baseball a lot. And every year I was on some kind of optimist team of some kind. And, you know, back then, not like today's culture back then, if you, if you lost, you didn't get a trophy, you actually did lose and you didn't get anything right now. Like in sports leagues with kids, it really bothers me. It's a little pet peeve of me. Like, you can lose every game and still get a trophy at the end of the year. That makes no sense. You're a loser, right? So, um, for us, you know, my team one year, didn't happen like this all the time, but I was on the worst team in the league. We did not ever win a game. Out of, like, 16 games, we never won. We didn't even get close. On Our best game was t- we lost by two runs. That's our best game. Right? Here's what happens, you know, with little kids when you're nine years old. At the end of the season, you always have a party. I didn't really want to go because we had lost every single game. What was the point of going? You're not going to get a trophy. Even the second to last team gets a trophy, but the last team didn't get a trophy. Right? So I'm just like, why are we even going? I, I mean, okay, and my, my dad said, hey, we're going to have pizza. Husky guy said, okay. You know? So I was cool with that. So we get there, and my coach had printed up for us, and this is great. He gave us all a hat, a black hat that in big yellow letters said, winner. Nobody wanted to wear that hat. What? Because we weren't winners. We just weren't. Our, and here's what, here's what I want to grasp from that story. Is that we, like he was saying, oh, you're, you guys are so good. You guys are going to be professional baseball players. What? Like, I mean... How is that possible? We lost every game. Like our hope for being a professional baseball player was not very good. We have to base our hope off of something that has happened in the past for us to go forward in the future with some kind of great hope. My baseball career ended very quickly after that because we are awful, right? We're not winners. We lost every game, thankfully. In the story of Christ, he has already won, completely won. And so our hope is based on our hope for the future specifically is anchored to this thing in the past. We can have faith. We can have love because what Christ has already done in our life, not because of what not, not because of what's happening now. And our reward will be in the future. Our hope will be in the future. So here's the deal. 
all of us need to place our faith into Christ and we still need to love others, not because of some mystical, you know, religious presence in the future that we're hoping to become a part of, but because of what Christ has already done in our life. It is very dangerous to build our hope on anything else besides Christ. And to believe that our hope lies within our job is very dangerous. To believe that our hope lies within our money is very selfish. To believe that our hope lies in our hobbies is very hazardous. To believe that our hope lies in our stuff is very terrifying to believe that our hope lies in our country is traitorous to believe that our hope lies in our family is treacherous to believe that our hope lies in our spouse our spouse is misinformed and to believe that our hope lies in our children is perilous sorry to all your michael jackson fans out there we are the world like your children are not the hope of the world i hate to break that to you the hope of the world is jesus was one man and he has already come he has already died for us now jesus is their hope every night i put my kids to bed and i pray that they would know jesus that they would know the hope that's in him that has already happened the hope-filled christian here's the here, it's going to be on the screen the hope-filled christian understands that the best life is not about what the world can give you now your best life is based upon what christ has already done and it's really dangerous to base your hope on the potentialities of what might be so your best life to be awakened to is a life in christ not anything else so here's the question who are you placing your faith into who are you loving and is your hope for a best life, no matter what you're going to, going through right now, your hope, is it based upon Jesus or something else? Here's the best part. He wants to give you that hope immediately today. And Christian, is your hope Jesus? If it's something else, your walk is going to be greatly hindered. Um, um, after the service is over, I'm going to be right over there at those tables. If you'd like to talk with me or talk with Joel, uh, we'll be right over there. Uh, and we'd love to pray with you, to speak with you uh, about anything. If you have some, uh, something to talk to us about, we'd love to speak with you then uh, after, we do some, after we do some worship time. So pray with me. We're going to have a little uh, moment of reflection. Uh, and then uh, and we're going to sing a little bit. And I hope that you would come and talk to me if you want to talk about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're thankful for how you have um, you have come, you have died, lived a perfect life, and now you want to give us great hope. And so I ask um, for the person in this room that desperately needs you, um, that their their heart is pounding; they don't even know. They don't even know the full knowledge of what needs to happen, but they just know that they need to make a decision. Father, I pray that you'd move them and draw them with your spirit towards Jesus and that they would just respond by taking an active step. And Father, I pray for the church. I pray for the people who have already committed their lives to Christ, that they would not be like the hunter who just from, from afar grasps onto Jesus and holds onto it with a fingertip. But Father, they would envelop it like a lion devouring your son jesus into their life 
giving all of themselves as a whole. Father, I'm grateful for this church. I'm thankful that you have started it and that you will sustain it through your son, Jesus. And we love you. Amen.